Welcome to Beside the Burn for Monday the 17th of May 2021 and we are continuing our studies in the book of James. This little letter that James wrote to the Christians who were dispersed right throughout the land because of their faith in Jesus Christ is really challenging us. It's helping us realise how we can cope with life in general. And this week, we're looking in particular at how do we cope with speaking. You remember, uh, right at the beginning, as we went into chapter 1, we saw that there were three main themes within this book of James. It started off with trials that you need to consider, uh, pure joy, that you need to welcome those trials coming into your life because they lead to perseverance. Then James went on to talk about wisdom and how we're to have that wisdom. And then he mentioned wealth and how we deal with the poor uh, and those who are disadvantaged. And last week, uh, after looking at those three themes uh, twice in, in chapter one, then in chapter two, uh, James sort of begins to look at them in reverse order. So last week was wealth. Uh, you remember we looked at favoritism and it was the idea of we don't prefer people who are wealthy. We treat everyone the same because they're all made in God's image. And then this week we're going to look at wisdom and next week we're going to be looking again at trials. And um, the, the test is that we need to examine what we say. We need to test the things that we say and see if there are any impurities in the way that we talk to others and the things that we say to God and to each other. And if there are those impurities, we need to ask God to remove them, to purify us, just like we purify the metal and the impurities rise to the top and are scraped off then this is what we need to do about speaking this week. And it's very like what we did last week with regards to favouritism. So remember that uh, James has already told us that we need to be slow to speak. And this is an important part of what we're learning today about speaking. And again, just as I was saying yesterday in the service, this is not saying be silent do not speak. It's saying be measured in what you say. Carefully consider the words that you use. And this is true for each one of us as believers in Jesus Christ. But James makes a distinction here that this is particularly so for teachers. Teachers of God's word. Teachers of the law. And therefore, he says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. And James is saying here that teaching is not really to be considered as a privilege, but it's to be considered as a responsibility. As a teacher, you have a responsibility to uphold God's word and to lead others to him. You've got a responsibility as a teacher to try and help people approach God, not to turn them away from God. And it's very easy in the things that we say to cause people to give up on God and to turn away from him. So, the, the idea of not uh, becoming, not many of you should become teachers. Um, some translations have not many of you should presume to be teachers. And the idea here is that we shouldn't be putting ourselves forward to be teachers as it were because we think that uh, this is um, a, a promotion or a good bit of status. We should allow others to come and say, will you teach? Will you do? I think that I've seen things in you that God would, would use as a teacher. And, and that's an important thing to do. And that's that, that we don't presume these things or we don't become them ourselves out of selfish ambition, but we allow God to use others to lead us. It's very easy uh, to say something that you don't mean it as a teacher. 
and gets tied up in theological knots, it's also very easy to say something on the spur of the moment without fully having thought it through, which can then cause offence and can cause hurt. And I think James is saying here, not many of you should become teachers because often a teacher's words can get twisted and the worst possible meaning can be taken from them whenever that was never the intention, whenever they were said. And so we need to be careful. Many times teachers will make mistakes, they will sin. And I'm not going to excuse their behaviour, but quite often the temptation is, is greater for the teacher. Tempted to please men, tempted not to hurt the feelings of others. Tempted just to to say things that, that, that aren't true and tempted to do things that would discredit the words that have been said. And James here acknowledges we all stumble in many ways. This idea of, of stumbling, we, we trip up, we make a mistake and it applies not just to the teachers but it applies to everyone. We are all Prone to do this, James says. Then moving on to the second half of verse 2 and then to verse 3. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. And here James is is warning us that we might try and attain perfection, but really we'll never be able to do that. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. And James knows very well that there is no one perfect but Jesus Christ. And he knows that no matter how hard we try to be perfect, we will be at fault. We will stumble. We will trip up, as it were. And uh, this is why speech is such a good indicator. If we could control it, then job done. If we can control the words that we say, never get them wrong, never say anything that hurts anyone, then we've reached perfection. And we might as well say, job done, that's it. I've got nothing more to achieve in life. But again, James knows that that's not the case. And our speech uh, leads us or, or can lead us into sin. And Genesis 3 verse 12, Alec Mateer says, and many of you will remember Alec from coming to the convention, that the first sin after the fall was a sin of speech. In Genesis 3 verse 12 we read, Adam says, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Adam is trying to abdicate responsibility for the sin that he and Eve have just been involved in. And so he lies to God. Okay, there's a little bit of truth in what he says, but he's blaming Eve rather than taking responsibility for his own actions. It's a sin that comes about through the speech of Adam. And therefore, we need to be careful what we say because it shows very clearly what our relationship with God is. And James goes on to use the example of putting a bit into the mouth of horses and therefore we make them obey us. They can turn the whole animal. So if the tongue can be controlled, then it is a good thing. The whole life can be turned around. The whole life can be pointed in the right direction. But if the tongue is out of control, then that is not a possibility. Then James goes on to uh, use a second illustration. This time he talks about ships. Take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. 
So it's a very similar illustration again to emphasize the point that a ship is even bigger than a horse and yet it can be controlled by the small rudder. So the human life can be controlled by the tongue. With a ship, there's strong winds that, that drive that ship and it, you cannot control these winds. The, these winds are, are out of control. You've simply got to harness them and, and use them whatever way they're blowing. But the rudder is in control. The small rudder is in control of the ship and will direct it the right way. If the rudder does not work properly, then the ship goes off course. If the tongue is not harnessed properly, then the entire person can be uncontrollable. So controlling the tongue enables those who steer wisely to set the course that they desire. The little tongue manoeuvres the whole person. You either control your tongue or your tongue controls you. And so these have been very positive illustrations here that we have. And the tongue can make great boasts about great things and can speak well of things. Because the ship's controlled by the, the small rudder. The horse is controlled by the small bit. The human is controlled by the tongue. So let's thank God uh, for this and let's ask his blessing to be upon us now. Heavenly Father, we do acknowledge that we all stumble in many ways. And whenever we stumble, we need your help. We need your blessing and your forgiveness in our lives. And we thank you, Lord, that you have uh, helped us understand how we're to speak and what we're to say so that we are careful not to hurt others and drive them away from you, but so that we allow them to come into your presence and to meet with you and know you. Lord, help us with what we say each day. Do not allow us to go off track and say things that hurt others and stop others from coming to you. So Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to Beside the Burn for Tuesday, the 18th of May. Today, we're continuing to ask the question, how do you cope with speaking? Uh, yesterday, we saw some very positive illustrations that James used uh, to say that whenever we speak, whenever we use our tongues, that that can direct our lives in the right direction. That can cause us to be able to say the right things and to help others. And the illustration of the bit in the horse's mouth means that the horse can be controlled and driven in the direction that it needs to go. And the other illustration that we had as well of the rudder of the ship, again, a huge ship that could be out of control, is held in place by the tiny rudder. And so it goes in our lives that we can be controlled in the right way through controlling our tongues. But now as we move into the second section from verse um, 6, second half of verse 5, uh, right through to verse 12, James is now using illustrations in a slightly different way about our speech. Those first two illustrations were very positive. We're speaking about the right way of speaking and, and leading us clearly. But now James moves on to negative illustrations. These illustrations now are destructive rather than good. And in doing that, James is showing us that our tongues can be very, very dangerous. That the tongue has a huge effect from something so small. And here we, we, we've, he talks about a spark uh, setting a great forest on fire. And we've seen recently uh, the blazes that have taken place in the morns and the destruction that has been left behind. And James is saying your tongue can do that. A small little word said in the wrong way can cause such trouble. 
So from the second half of verse 5, consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. And that's the destruction, that's the, the problem that's coming out of this. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. So, a lot to take in here about the tongue. It, it, it can cause so much destruction, so many problems in a world of evil. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and it's set on fire by the fire of hell. This is dangerous. If we don't get a hold of our tongues and get them under control, then we are in big problems. So as we've uh, seen before, there's uh, an element here, the tongue is a fire, uh, is a fire world of evil uh, among the parts of the body. This evil, we've been told that God wants us to be righteous. He wants a righteous life, but this tongue can lead us to a life of um, unrighteousness, a, a life of evil. And here among the parts of the body we're thinking about the spiritual body of christ here that we're all part of not just our own bodies where there there's a tongue in as part of the body and it corrupts the whole body so the things that we say can corrupt a whole person can corrupt a whole church which is the body of christ and sets a whole course of one's life on fire. So this is serious. It is important that we realise the extent to which our tongues can cause all these problems. Then we move on to verses 7 and 8. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. If you think back to uh, Genesis, in the opening chapter of the Bible, God gave Adam a task in Genesis. He was to rule over the animals. He was to name them. And the man, animals maintain this creation order because they're being controlled by man. They're being tamed by man. But... The tongue is a different case entirely. You can take a wild animal and you can tame it. But James is saying, try taming the tongue. It's not going to work out well for you. So the, the taming has to be done by man. And yet it can't be done by man. We actually need the wisdom of Jesus Christ uh, to tame us. And what we see here, uh, no human can uh, tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. This is like the double-minded person that we read about in chapter 1 uh, and verse 8. The double-minded person is unstable. They're, they're, they're restless in all that they do. And at any moment, the, the tongue can lash out with this deadly poison. So again, this is serious. It's been set on fire in hell. It has deadly poison in it. It can lash out at any moment. We cannot neglect the things that we say because they can cause so much trouble. And this deadly poison that comes out, it makes us think also of the serpent with Adam and Eve right at the beginning of Genesis once again in the garden. And the serpent comes along and speaks to them and tells them what they really should understand about God and causes them to sin. 
So there's a lot in these verses once again. And then verses 9 to 10. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. The big problem with the tongue is the duplicity that it is so easy to say one thing and then turn around and say the opposite thing. It's all too easy to praise God at one moment and then be cursing the next moment. And here James is telling us that we should not be cursing people who have been made in God's likeness. How can that be? Look at a person. How can you curse that person? How can you wish evil on that person whenever they have been created in God's image? And we perhaps forget that too easily, that we are created in the likeness to God, And therefore, we should treat everyone equally. To bless is, I suppose, the best thing that we can do with the tongue. To praise God is the best thing. But to curse is the worst thing that we can do with our tongues. And we've got the two sitting side by side here. Double-mindedness, I suppose, results in double-tonguedness. Double-mindedness and unstableness causes us then to use our tongues in such a way that we speak in two different ways. And James is just saying, this should not be. This is not the way things are to happen. This has no place in a Christian's life. And once again, the words reveal the heart. The words here show us clearly what's in someone's heart. They're a test as to whether somebody is a follower of Jesus Christ or not. And then verses 11 and 12 can both, uh, James uses again another simple illustration to help us to see what's going on. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Of course not. My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives? Of course not. Or a grapevine bear frigs? Certainly not. Neither can a salt spring produce salt water. Our mouth is like a spring of water. Only takes a little bit of salt to contaminate it. And this speech must be pure. We don't have to be perfect, but we do have to be consistent in the way that we live. And James here is telling us that the foolishness of thinking that we can go against it. You cannot go against what is at the core of our being. We cannot produce good speech on our own. We need to go to the one who is wisdom and trust in him to speak through us and trust in him to help us. So let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to be consistent in the way that we speak. Help us, Lord, not to say one thing to one person and the complete opposite to someone else, but help us to be consistent. The truth, Lord, is important. It is the only way that we can live our lives. And so, Lord, we look to you that your truth would be manifested. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to Beside the Burn for Wednesday the 19th of May. And thank you for joining with us as we continue through the book of James. This week is chapter 3. And we're asking this question, how do you cope with speaking? And today we come to the solution. Because James is telling us that it is wisdom that will help us cope with speaking. And it almost seems as though uh, James is going down a, a different route here. He's changing the subject. But controlling our tongues 
is a, a popular theme in wisdom. From verse 13 onwards, James is talking much more about wisdom. But as we will see, that is very dependent on us uh, being able to um, control our tongues and to know what's being said. So this idea of controlling the tongue, it's popular within wisdom literature. And James here at the start of verse 13 asks a rhetorical question. Who is wise and understanding among you? Who is it that, that's able to do these things? And James here is asking it because he wants someone to come forward and, and to step forward and to say, I am wise, but no one is wise apart from Jesus Christ. And so therefore, there's a gap that develops. So who is wise? Wisdom there's a difference here between wisdom and understanding. Wisdom, as we often uh, think about in the Bible, is to do with the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom leads to the fear of God. And understanding is much more practical. It's understanding something about God and then allowing that knowledge to change our uh, behaviour. So understanding is practical. It allows one to exercise wisdom. So who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life. We are to seek knowledge about God. We're to search for him. And we're to, I suppose this let, maybe a better translation is must. Um, let them show it by their good life. They must show it by good life. There's no other option for the Christian but uh, to, to do that. And the faith is leading to works, it's leading to action, it's leading to something that we do. So we're to show our wisdom by our good life and then also in the humility that comes from wisdom. And that's how we display wisdom. Humility that comes from wisdom, that's a, a, an odd expression that's used here, but I suppose the idea is meekness, or to be meek. And that's not very popular, Wasn't, wouldn't have been very popular in James's day, certainly not very popular our day. Jesus taught about meekness, and we need to understand our own unworthiness before God, and Wisdom allows us to understand that position and gives us the humility to be able to deal with it. In verse 21 of chapter 1, we're told, humbly accept the word planted in you. And again, this idea of humility here. And the word is living. It is the word, Jesus Christ. Wisdom is a person. And therefore, we see if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. This bitter envy is, I, I suppose, jealousy. And James here is giving us the opposite of wisdom. Bitter envy, selfish ambition. That's the foolish person does that. It is not someone who is wise. And wanting to promote oneself uh, above others, that is not the humility of wisdom. So do not boast about it or deny the truth. It's easy, like verse 5, to make great boasts. But here we're told that this is our speech again. Do not boast about it or deny the truth. So what is the true source of this wisdom? It is coming from 
the devil, not heaven. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. These three are opposite of wisdom that comes down from heaven. And the tongue is set on fire by the devil in these verses, in the demonic. So here we have the wisdom that is worldly. And it's very easy to be sucked in and to be taken by that wisdom. Earthly wisdom is always inferior to heavenly wisdom. Earthly wisdom is always something that relies on ourselves rather than relying upon God. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Whenever we strive for more in the church, we actually create more problems. We need to be able to trust God and his provision. And we'll find disorder, we're told here. And this is the instability, the unstable, double-minded person that we now find in disorder. When we operate in the church with worldly values, we offer Satan an entrance into the house of God. Envy opens the door to all manner of wickedness. And people who seek their own glory have no place in the church. So wisdom that does not come down from heaven is not worth anything. It is only heavenly wisdom that will help us and get us through. So let's turn to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this distinction. And we thank you, Lord, that we are able to see the wisdom that you want us to have, wisdom that comes from you, that comes down from heaven, not just our own evil desires that we want. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us now, that you would be with us, that you would strengthen us, that you would guide us throughout this day and the days ahead, that we might bring glory to your name. Amen. Welcome to Beside the Burn for Thursday the 20th of May. You join us as we uh, reach the end of chapter 3 of James and uh, we're going to look at the last couple of verses, verses 17 and 18 and then come back again tomorrow because we're going to do our usual thing at the end of the week and link James with the Sermon on the Mount and find some of the themes that James is developing from what Jesus taught the disciples uh, on that mountain as he preached to them. But for today, uh, we've been looking at uh, what we can say, how we should speak, how do we cope with speaking as followers of Jesus Christ? How do we make sure that the things that we say are fitting for a saviour who has given everything for us? And we've been looking at how wisdom is to guide our thoughts. Yesterday, we were looking at worldly wisdom and how the world has a certain set of standards and ideals for the way that we live our lives and the way that we speak. And today, then, we're finishing with heavenly wisdom. And this is the wisdom that Jesus wants us to employ in our lives, to guide the things that we say, to guide the way that we act, to look at everything within our lives. So today, verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3, let's read together and let's find out what uh, James is trying to tell us about Jesus' words about wisdom. And here are the two verses. But the wisdom, so here's this idea of wisdom again, and wisdom is all about what we say and uh, what, what we're speaking about. But the wisdom that comes from heaven, so this is the heavenly wisdom, is first of all pure, then it's peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. It's impartial, it's sincere. 
Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So there's lots of things going on here and we're going to go through the verses. But first of all, just just look at this idea of peace loving and, and peacemakers. Look at this word righteousness that has cropped up time and time again. Uh, how we're to live a, a righteous life that's pleasing to God. And the idea of, of uh, reaping a harvest and, and sowing seeds that then produce a harvest. All of these things are linked together and linked back to what James has been saying. Even the idea of mercy here, where mercy triumphs over judgment. Again, is a very important theme uh, with James the whole way through. So James in these couple of verses at the end of chapter 3 is moving on to what true wisdom or heavenly wisdom actually looks like. And he's emphasising here the origin of this wisdom, where it comes from. This wisdom comes from heaven. It's not just a a heavenly wisdom or a, a wisdom that's influenced by heaven. It actually comes from heaven and that's important. It comes from heaven, so it avoids all the problems that we saw in verse 16. Um, Because in verse 16, as we were thinking about worldly wisdom, uh, James writes, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. And so here, it's coming from heaven, so it avoids all of those things. And it's a gift from God. The only way to get this wisdom is to look to God. It's not that we can educate ourselves and make ourselves smarter so that we have this great wisdom. And only a few people can have it. Only those who are intellectually mature enough to be able to work it out. No, this is a gift. It comes from God. And in that way, this wisdom is very like God's grace. It's a free gift from him. So we look to him. We seek him. We spend our time with him and this wisdom comes to us and anyone can have this wisdom. You don't have to be smart or worldly wise. You need to look to heaven and you are given this wisdom from heaven. And this wisdom from heaven is first of all pure. So this is the first characteristic that we see here and Of course, as we look ahead, there are other things that are mentioned, but pure is the first one. And this seems to be the important one, that if we can get this purity right, then all the other parts of wisdom are going to fit together. So that word pure uh, can also have the idea of being unmixed. So it's not mixed in with the things of the world. It's not mixed in with other ideas. It's purely from heaven. It is God's wisdom and his wisdom alone. It's free. The way that it's pure, it's free from the moral and the spiritual defects that comes from somebody who's unstable, somebody who's double-minded. The the double-minded person, their mind is mixed with the things of heaven and the things of the world, but this wisdom is pure. And everything else follows from purity because this wisdom is unstained by the world and it isn't compromised by anything that we find in the world. So then we move on and we've got all these different characteristics that I've already underlined there and, and emphasized as we were reading it. And the order of these doesn't seem to be just quite so important. As long as you get purity first, the rest of them could really be in any order. And it would appear that in the Greek, these words are chosen in this order because they sound good together. They're the sort of words that flow off the tongue in this particular order. And therefore, James is making it as easy for people to read and to remember and to recite as possible. And the words obviously are important, but not necessarily the order that they come in. And just because they're there in a way that's easy to understand and easy to remember, it doesn't diminish them in any way whatsoever. So this heavenly wisdom is everything that earthly wisdom is not. Uh, God's holiness is 
heavenly wisdom that enters a sinful world but is not affected by it. And a believer consistently characterized by these virtues would really impact the world. If we were able to live our lives peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, all these different things, then we would truly make a difference in the world. People would stop and question what our motives are, what the reason is for the way that we live. They would question the things that we're doing if we were truly living out these two verses. And that's why there's such wisdom contained in them and that's why they're so important. Now I've claimed in this book of James that wisdom is not a thing but it's a person and I've been saying that the person is Jesus Christ so if we want wisdom in our lives we invite Jesus into our lives. But here James is I suppose taking that to the next level and he's hinting at the fact that wisdom is Jesus Christ but it's also now the Holy Spirit. Because this is very similar to the fruit of the Spirit that Paul writes about. These are the things that appear in a life that is governed by the Holy Spirit. And that is what James is trying to get across here. If we live the righteous life, if we are producing a harvest of righteousness, and Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit in our lives, then these are the things that are going to come out of our life for others to see. And it's interesting here, as we think about Holy Spirit, um, Sunday coming, 23rd of May, is Pentecost Sunday. We're actually going to take a break from the book of James on Sunday in church, and we're going to think more about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit ties in uh, many of the themes that we've been looking at in James so far. So let's very briefly um, just look at what these various different um, characteristics are. Uh, wisdom is to be peace-loving. There's to be no conflict in the person that is peace, uh, that is um, that has wisdom. No conflict. Um, you're not to be combative and always looking to um, be in conflict with other people. You're to find peace. And um, false wisdom, I suppose, is full of strife. It's always at war. There's always that edge to it. And you, you can't settle or relax with anyone with uh, worldly wisdom. You're always trying to be one up on them. Whereas this wisdom from Jesus is very much peace-loving, everyone together, no conflict. It's to be considerate. And the idea there is that we're, we're gentle, that we think of others, that we forgo our own rights and we prefer other people. And then again, it's that idea of favoritism, that we're not to show favoritism, that we're not just to go out and always look after the poor, or sorry, look after the wealthy and invite them into uh, the best places. We're to actually actively go out and seek the poor. Um favour them as it were because God himself chooses the poor and we're going to think about that in a very clear way on Sunday so um, do look for that. Submissive, this is a, a contrast to the selfish ambition of the wisdom of the world. We, we put people who are selfish on pedestals in today's world who go get, who are always pushing forward, who are always achieving and don't get me wrong, there is nothing wrong with achieving as long as it is not at the disadvantage of others. And for many to make money in today's world and to be wealthy means that they've exploited others at times. And it's a very rare person who has always chosen the poor, who has always um, been careful in the way that they show favouritism, who has then become wealthy. Uh, and so we need to be submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. That it's very easy whenever we're trying to follow the wisdom of the world, not to show mercy, but to condemn. How quickly people are cancelled in today's culture because they say one thing wrong. And the wrath 
is brought down on these people and they are ridiculed and sidelined, whereas wisdom from heaven allows us to act with mercy and to show forgiveness and to care for others. Always looking for the best in others rather than the worst. We're to be impartial, again, that idea of favouritism. We're to be sincere in what we do, lacking hypocrisy and and double-mindedness. And all of that is important. And in it, we sow these seeds and we reap a harvest of righteousness. And that is important. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness or reap a harvest of righteousness. Here we have that word righteousness again. And if we want a harvest of righteousness, then we need to pursue peace. And wisdom, heavenly wisdom, will bring about that peace because we're thinking of others, we're being considerate of others. And so verse 18 is the result of heavenly wisdom. And this is an incredible harvest to produce in our lives. The very thing that God is looking for. Peace in this context is calm and it is steady. And that is what God wants from us. So James chapter 3, an incredible chapter. Very practical in how we speak really shows what our true belief is. How we speak really uh, impacts others around us. But it's also very spiritual as well, that this wisdom from heaven is vital for us in our relationship with God and how we deal with him. So let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, today we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and enable us to live with your wisdom from heaven. Help us, Lord, to show that wisdom in the things that we say to others and the way that we treat others. And Lord, help us to show that wisdom in the way that we speak to you and the things that we say about you. That your name would be on our lips that we would be ready to tell others about you and allow them to come into our world and meet you. That we wouldn't just assume that people would keep uh, Jesus uh, at a distance, but that we would bring you into every situation that we go into and show your heavenly wisdom, not in a way that condemns others, but in a way that leads them to salvation in you. So Lord, give us that wisdom today, we pray, through your Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And help us today, Lord, to show that wisdom in everything that we're called upon to do in your name. Amen. Welcome to Beside the Burn for Friday the 21st of May. All this week we've been thinking about how do you cope with speaking and how the words from our mouths impact our relationship with Jesus and indeed our witness to other people. And James throughout this chapter has been uh, very concerned with the way that we might speak and how that speech would be guided by wisdom. And what we're going to see today is we've reached the end of the chapter. We're going to go back, pick up a couple of verses on our way through and go once again to the Sermon on the Mount and find the themes that Jesus spoke about there and how they relate to what James is saying. And the Sermon on the Mount is a a wonderful sermon. Jesus took his disciples up the mountain, found a place, started to teach them. The people came along and listened to what he was saying, and he spoke on many different subjects in that sermon. And they were all short, little, pithy statements, Lots of illustrations that he used to help us remember them. Um, used lots of analogies um, about how life was to be and how we were to follow him. It was a very practical sermon, just like James's letter here, but also very spiritual as well, because it's all about how these practical actions impact our relationship with God. And that's what we need to remember as we uh, read through James. It is very practical but it also at the same time is very spiritual. So let's see how uh, James links in with the Sermon on the Mount. Every time I come to the Sermon on the Mount, I'm always uh, reminded of a professor that we had in college and 
Uh, he um, loved to, to tell stories uh, about uh, people that he had met and conversations that he had. And one particular story that came up time and time again, and he would um, tell us about it over and over again as if he'd never told us before, uh, was one time that he uh, met Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that uh, great preacher uh, in, in London. And Lloyd-Jones was renowned for great preaching, but also long preaching. And he would start in a book of the Bible and he would uh, preach verse by verse through uh, the chapters of that particular book and would take sometimes years to get through a particular uh, book because he would take each verse and each sermon would be quite long. And Somehow or other, our professor had got into a, a conversation about the length of a sermon, uh, and Lloyd Jones was, um, you know, saying, "Oh, at least forty-five minutes, possibly an hour, uh, for the length of a sermon." And our professor, uh, rather wittily as he thought, uh, asked Lloyd Jones how long the sermon on the mount was. And if you read through the sermon, it's probably about 20 minutes in length, not much more. And his point was to Lloyd-Jones, perhaps, you know, if Jesus thought 20 minutes was a good length, then perhaps you should think about preaching for 20 minutes instead of 45 minutes to an hour. And apparently Lloyd-Jones replied to him that Jesus could manage to fit everything into 20 minutes because he was Jesus. Lloyd-Jones would have to settle for fitting it into a much longer time. And he wasn't swayed by the length of the sermon at all. So let's look together at what James says. My brothers and sisters, this is verse 12 of chapter 3. My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. And James is using this idea to show us that whenever we're speaking, our speech should be consistent. Whenever we say something uh, spiritual, then the rest of our speech should be spiritual. We can't be crass one moment and then praising God the next. That's not how it should be. And then in verses 16 and 17, again the same idea. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And all of this is linked into Matthew chapter 7 and verses 16 to 20, where Jesus in the sermon says, By their fruit you will recognise them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognise them. Jesus here teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, these words are harsh words, but they come from a loving Saviour. And so we're able to listen to them and take them in, but we must not underestimate the severity of these words. Jesus is telling us very clearly that we will be known by the fruit that we produce. Right throughout these verses, fruit is mentioned time and time again. And each time that Jesus mentions the fruit, the fruit is what displays what's inside. So if you look at a tree, you're not sure what sort of tree that is. But dependent on the fruit that's on the tree, you can then decide what the, the tree is. So if there are figs, well, it has to be a fig tree. If there are thorns, it has to be a thorn bush. There's no mistaking that. The fruit clearly tells you what is there. So whenever we look at our own lives, the fruit that we produce tells us 
and indeed tells others what's inside our hearts. So, for example, if we're always, um, I, I suppose, being nasty about other people, if we're always complaining, if there's a, a lot of bitterness in the words that we say, that would suggest that there is real bitterness in our hearts, that there's anger in our hearts, that there's discontent in our hearts. And therefore, it's highly likely that Jesus is not in our hearts. Whereas if our words are always encouraging, if they're always gentle, if they're always helpful, if they're words of concern and compassion, then that would suggest that those are the characteristics that are in our hearts and that Jesus is dwelling in our hearts, prompting all those things. And that's vital in today's world because today's world, it is difficult to speak out about being a follower of Jesus Christ. Because as soon as we speak about being a follower of Jesus Christ, we are ridiculed for it. In a way that I don't think other faiths are ridiculed. Now, I don't want to get uh, political in this. And what, what I'm about to say is certainly not a political statement or an endorsement in any way. But the, the recent... Um, television uh, and I suppose media representations of Edwin Putz as he was elected a leader of the DUP. As soon as he was elected leader of the DUP, his Christian values were ruled out. And he was, I suppose, ridiculed for those Christian values. Used to be in years gone by, if somebody was a Christian, that was seen as something positive for them to be a, a leader in the world. But certainly here, his views were ridiculed. Now, whether you agree with his views politically or not, it's a dangerous position to be in that somebody can simply be written off because they claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so therefore... It's the fruit of our lives that makes the difference. So whenever we say we're Christian and people would then try to characterise us, we then have to live lives that produce fruit to show people what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That being a follower of Jesus does not mean that we are full of hatred in our speech, but that we're full of love and care and compassion. And that's where each one of us have this responsibility to live in this way and to live in such a way that it is unmistakable by our actions what our belief is. And I suppose the problem comes very much that if we claim to be followers of Jesus but our actions uh, are the complete opposite, then people will spot hypocrisy and, and will call that out. So then, later on in chapter 3, at the very end, the last verse, we have this statement, which, as we're going to see in a moment, links in with the Beatitudes again. And James often gives us little statements that link in with the Beatitudes. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And that links in with Matthew 5 and verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Peacemaking is what Jesus Christ calls us to. Peacemaking is done through the wisdom that comes from heaven. And we need to be actively pursuing peace. And that means on a political level that we're looking for peace, but it also means on a community and a personal level, on a church level, we are looking for peace. That we're not always trying to rake up problems and have conflict, but that we're looking for what Jesus would do and how he would react. So let's remember that whether we are in public life and being interviewed on the media or indeed whether we're just quietly going about our business each and every day, the things that we say have a huge impact 
on how others perceive Jesus Christ. The things that we say and the way that we react to people will help people to see who we believe Jesus Christ to be. And therefore it's important that we make sure that we speak wisely with the wisdom that comes from heaven. So let's ask God to help us today. Lord God, we pray that you would guard our speech today. Help us as we speak day by day to speak for you. And help us, Lord, with our words to draw people to you. We pray, Lord, for all those who speak in public and profess you as their Lord and Saviour. We pray that you would give them wisdom from heaven to say the right things. We pray that they wouldn't be double-minded and tossed about, but that they would stick closely to your word and would show your mercy and your compassion. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is compassionate and loving. And we ask, Lord, that you would be with us day by day and help us. Lord, give us some time today to think over all that we have been looking at this past week and help us in all these things to bring glory to your name. For, Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.